We are much more likely to say America is an idea or an abstraction or an ideology rather than America is a place, a people, a history, a set of institutions, a set of fragile achievements, and so on. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtka. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Gamble, who is Anna Margaret Ross Alexander Chair in History and Politics and Professor at Hillsdale College. His publications include The War for Righteousness, Progressive Christianity, The Great War, and The Rise of the Messianic Nation, ISI Books, published 2003, The Great Tradition, Classic Readings and What It Means to Be an Educated Human Being, also ISI Books, and more recently, In Search of the City on a Hill, The Making and Unmaking of the American Myth, among others. He is currently at work on the first intellectual and religious biography of Julia Ward Howe. His courses, essays, and reviews focus on the history of American civil religion and the long argument over the American identity. Great to have you with us, Richard. Great to be with you. Great. Well, before we get to our interview, we'd like to thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Well, Richard, today's topic is the Protestant tradition in American history. So perhaps a good place to start is with the fact that there have been different shades of Protestant Protestantism at different times in American history. Think back to the Puritans and the Mayflower, then you have the Great Awakening movements, and then progressive Christianity in the 20th century. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the common threads in this Protestant tradition, the tensions within it, and how that's shaped American identity throughout the ages. I, I love the easy question you started Big out sweeping with questions. That's right. how we start. My yeah. goodness. Well, let me start from an angle that I've been thinking a lot about this summer. I, I, I was laid up for 12 weeks after foot surgery. So I did a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, and some writing. And I revisited the question of American civil religion and how that whole conversation, all the scholarship got started in the 1960s with the work of the sociologist Robert Bella and his uh, really landmark essay from 1967 called Civil Religion in America. And, and one of the things I realized there is that Robert Bella, as sociologist, was actually working with a, in some ways, a very peculiar understanding of the American religious tradition and of American Protestantism and of the Puritans. And I think we have been affected by the kind of story that Bella was telling and then became so influential on about two generations of scholars. For Robert Bella, he, he believed that the most radical activist form of Protestantism is what came to America and defined America he was a man of the left. He wanted a social, he was raised in the social gospel in the 1930s. He wanted a socially activist 
transformational church in his own generation. And so he created a lineage, an ancestry for that, trying to show that that was indeed the most authentically American, original American tradition, that it was the most radical of the reformers, reform communities that came to America, that that is what characterized Puritanism in New England, and then Puritanism in New England, which is a really hard idea to shake loose of, but that Puritanism in New England is in fact what defined America, the American identity, American institutions, so that to return to an activist transformational Protestantism was really to reconnect with what made America, America. And he has, I'll give one other example here. He also believed that America was endlessly revolutionary, more of a French revolutionary identity. So, and he brought together the, his understanding of radical Protestantism and radical revolutionary that the religion and the politics come together, that, 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 that that's the best of American civil religion, that America is constantly pushing down barriers, re- reinventing itself, open-ended transformation, and that that should be exported to the world, that, that we, will, we can look forward to the day when we have a global civil religion, which is premised on this very particular reading of American history. It, it reminds me a little bit of Walter McDougall and some of his work, and, and perhaps he would probably disagree with Bella, with making the distinction between the old ACR yeah. and the new ACR. Right, right. And in, in presumably his understanding of the old ACR would be different than the story Bella is trying to tell, which would probably show more continuity between the old and the new, or the new is sort of the, the logical outgrowth of the old. Can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about, in your view, what that old American civil religion was, and if it, if it is more compatible with, with uh, perhaps a less radical understanding of Protestantism? Yeah, thanks for that question, John. I mean, that gets right to the heart of what I've been wrestling with most recently. And I'll I'll sketch out a few thoughts here. We have, there are really two ways we use the word civil religion. One way emphasizes the civil part, and one way emphasizes the religion part. Civil religion can mean the appropriation of religion for civil purposes, political and domestic foreign policy purposes. And it can mean the appropriation of the Bible. It can be the appropriation of Christian doctrine, the identity of the Christian church. It can lead to talking about America almost as if it is the church. That's not unique to any one time period. Uh, so that's it's a way of making your nation state sacred. And that can, is part of what we mean by civil religion. 
The other side is the civil religion, right? What is it? Some some speak of a civic nationalism that is not the sacralized idealistic nationalism, but a civic that is rooted in institution, history, institutions, and so on. And I think that there's that. And and Walter McDougall's work is really good in sorting this out. When, When we speak loosely of a civil religion, we're talking about formative events, heroes, achievements, documents, constitution, declaration, uh, Washington's farewell address that have that have been given a, an almost canonical status that give us an affirmation of who we are, what our principles are, what we stand for, what we owe ourselves, and what we owe the world. So I think the the older civil religion falls more into that category. The moment I say that, I think of a thousand exceptions to that. So it's probably safer to say that the older civil, kind of a civic religion, helped keep in check the temptation to make America sacred and make it into a redeemer nation, a messianic nation. I think that temptation was always there, but that it was kept in check by. I wish I had a very better vocabulary here, right? Kept in check by that civic civil religion. And partly due to the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, definitely the First World War, when Woodrow Wilson characteristically thinks of America in terms of a sacred mission, a an international crusade, I think that new civil religion finally overwhelms the old civil religion. We are much more likely to say America is an idea or an abstraction rather than, or an ideology, uh, rather than America is a place, a people, a history, a set of institutions, a set of fragile achievements, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I have a sort of a contemporary application of that, and then we'll go back to Lincoln. But in um, in President Biden's speech last night in Philadelphia in front of Constitution Hall, I just read it before hopping on this podcast. There's this line, and he says, America is an idea, the most powerful idea in the world. It beats in the hearts of the people of this country. It beats in all our hearts. It unites America it is the American creed, right? So, the- oh, I, <laughs> all right, that's uh, I got to go find that. Yeah. So there you go. That's that's uh, exactly what you're describing. I'm wondering. I want to go back to Lincoln. You had written an essay for the American Conservative probably a decade ago, talking about the the um, Gettysburg Address and how it's uh, th- there are no particulars in the Gettysburg Address. It's, it's sort of a universal manifesto and in, in, in the ways in which Lincoln sort of people sort of read the founding, you know, forever after his speech, most people through the lens of, of Lincoln. On, on a slightly tangential note, I've been working on a speech that I'm giving actually at the National Conservatism Conference 
on the American school of economics, the American system of economics, and in reading some of the American system thinkers who were very influential on Lincoln, what strikes me about Matthew Carey and Henry Clay and Henry Carey, who was one of Lincoln's top economic advisors, and Friedrich List, who is a German economist who came over with Lafayette, is that part of their critique of, of free trade and sort of classical economics is that it's too theoretical, it's too abstract, and that those theories don't work in concrete history. And so there's a, you know, sort of a very strong defense of history and experience over ideology when it comes to economics. And I know that, you know, Lincoln as a, you know, Henry Clay man was very much steeped at least in his economic thought in sort of this experience and history kind of driven school of economic thought. So in that sense, I don't know, it might seem like, wow, it's kind of surprising that Lincoln at the same time was also so universalist in his language and rhetoric. So I, I'm just wondering if you can talk perhaps about some of the influences on Lincoln and and why you think he went, you know, straight to sort of biblically inspired universals and sort of the messianic calling of America in that speech. Right. <laughs> what a volatile topic this is, right? Everybody has really firm con convictions one way or the other about uh, Lincoln and the Gettysburg. I, I think I'm, and I'm not sidestepping this question. I will, I will tackle it. I, I think I'm most interested and alert to the way Lincoln's rhetoric gets used and the way that Lincoln and his words are made into iconic representations of the meaning of America. Lincoln as symbol, I think, is most interesting to me. And figuring Lincoln out, right, there are, there is many more there's many books written about Lincoln almost as about Jesus. He's one of the most studied figures in all of human history. But there's still something really enigmatic about him and where his ideas come from, especially as a you know, classic uh, self-educated man. There is some influence on him from New England transcendentalists and left-wing theologians. The Boston Unitarian, radical Unitarian, Theodore Parker, uh, was an influence on Lincoln. It's striking. I mean, this is highly circumstantial, but Theodore Parker is one of the earliest people to refer to the United States as an idea. That's already in the 1840s. And he's thinking in terms of some German and French philosophical idealism and arguing that America as idea helps us determine who is the real American, who is not the real American. And it's also from Theodore Parker that probably that Lincoln gets the phrase of the people, by the people, for the people. Theodore Parker used that on any number of occasions in his essays. But it's a common phrase of the time. So it, it, I, think it's, I think it's likely that Lincoln was influenced by certain universalist, abstract, propositional thinking. But of course, he's primarily a very successful politician. And he 
was extremely gifted in mobilizing his words fit into a political and military uh, agenda. One of the really striking things about the Gettysburg Address is, as you mentioned, I, I had written about it, what we don't find there. Right? We probably imagine that there's stuff going on in the Gettysburg Address that's simply not there. There's no North, no South, no Battle of Gettysburg. Unlike Edward Everett's massive speech before this, in which he does this epic retelling of the Battle of Gettysburg, none of that is there in the Gettysburg Address. So we have uh, our fathers, this continent, no mention of America, no mention of the United States, this continent right, dedicated to a proposition, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, certain inalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as you alluded to, many scholars from all different ideological positions have said that that quotation from the Declaration of Independence and the claim that America has been dedicated to a proposition, that that changed or solidified one way of reading the American founding, that we now read in hindsight, we read the Declaration itself, and we read the, uh, the, the founding, the significance of the war for independence. We read it through the Gettysburg Address. Uh, and I think there's a lot to that. Why our eye goes immediately to one part of the Declaration of Independence and, and not another. Uh, and, and Lincoln here in the Gettysburg Address uses the word nation repeatedly. And he starts at the beginning of the Civil War and before in the, in the campaign, he speaks of the Union and the need to preserve the Union, defend the Union, maintain the integrity of the Union. By Gettysburg Address, there's no Union, there's the nation. And in the context of the mid-19th century, in the context of the European movements, the wars of unification, the wars of independence, how much Americans have been paying attention to the Hungarian War in you know, 1840s, 50, the Italian unification going on at the same time as the American Civil War, German unification, same time. To say nation at that point uh, carries a lot with it. And I, I believe that the Gettysburg Address helps, helps create an American nation uh, that in some ways uh, helps uh, or encourages a, a collective amnesia about confederation, about federalism. Uh, and and it, I don't think it's a stretch to to see Lincoln as giving us more of a European-style romantic nationalist identity. But he's not even the strongest voice in this. Senator Charles Sumner, for example, is even more explicit about this. Your response has prompt, prompted so many thoughts. But before, I, and I want to get to some contemporary questions, but I'm guessing, so I'm curious, you know, one one conventional way of telling the story of where America went wrong was that in the early 20th century, the German, you know, sort of German 
progressivism was kind of imported into the university system. And, you know, under Wilson, sort of this, this is sort of where America got infected with sort of this disease of progressivism. Is there a, a closer link in your reading between this, the German uh, romanticism of Lincoln and the progressivism that followed? My goodness, Johnny. The I, I'm I'm hemming and hawing right now because a colleague and I, for five semesters, have been offering one credit seminars, looking at like trying to document the actual connections of European thought to antebellum America, and we've looked at Hegel, Kant. We've gone back to Francis Bacon. What are Americans reading? What are they debating? And it turns out that there's this rich, rich philosophical reflection going on in America that that we know next to nothing about. Say all that to say that already in the 1830s, 40s, American intellectuals are reading German philosophers, theologians. They're reading German literature, Goethe, Schiller. It has a big impact in the United States, not confined to New England, but probably most prominent in New England. There are some important, despite its reputation, the South is not an intellectual wasteland. It's very vibrant in its intellectual engagement. So there's there's a German influence, but that that influence gets filtered through an American experience. And some of what we later call progressivism is domestic, it's homegrown. And some of it is imported from overseas. And I think it, it, it comes together in a, in a unique American mix. There are those who argue that America, because of the uniqueness of the American constitutional achievement of 1787, that the destruction of that achievement must also be uniquely American. and say, well, it's not just, it's not part of a, of an international phenomenon of industrial capitalism and so on. But I, I, I don't think that really holds up. So back to your question. Uh, the, the use of German philosophy and theology, even, even with Hegel, can take some American thinkers in the opposite direction from progressivism. It can turn them into enemies of John Dewey. And boy, this is a story we don't know. So it's it's almost impossible to predict. Like you said, like there's this contagion or this pathogen, right? It's almost impossible to predict that this American Hegelian is going to end up believing this about the power of the modern administrative state or about education or about the economy. There, there are some, some correlations there, but it's, it's just not that easy. So there's, there's a foreign influence on progressivism. Americans, here's my, here's my uh, oversimplified take on this with my own students. I say progressivism happens the moment Americans say, why can't we be more like Europe? So when they look at their industrial problems and say, oh, Germany is a model of the most intelligent and 
benevolent response to the problems of modern industrialization? Or why can't we be more like France? Woodrow Wilson says this. Why can't we be more like the liberal movement in England? So the sources are are coming from a multiple number of places. Uh, the examples, philosophy and, and practical legislation, uh, that's, that's all a part of what happens with American progressivism. But there's a loss of American exceptionalism. There's a loss of American exceptionalism when it comes to foreign policy at the same time. The, the international side of progressivism is happening at the same side as the domestic side of progressivism. The, in the 1890s, Teddy Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge, and others are asking, why can't we be more like Britain, France, Germany, in foreign policy? America must have a large navy. America must uh, reinforce, uh, expand the size of its army, and so on. And some of the classical liberals, like William Graham Sumner and others, are saying, what makes us exceptional is all this institutional achievement of the founding period. That's our decision to be not Europe. And we are about to lose that in both foreign and domestic policy. So I, I hope that gets at some of what, what you were thinking. No, about. it does. And I do think there's a weird way in which also America does export. So progressivism could be that imitation of Europe, Germany or England or France. But shifting back again to sort of my pet project on the American system, you do have someone like Friedrich List, who was a German, who came here with Lafayette, immediately gets plugged into Henry, Clary, Henry Carey and the Philadelphia Nationalists. And sort of it was that community in Philadelphia, really, that shaped a lot of his economic thought. And then he went back to Germany and then Bismarck basically had his book on economic nationalism, the national system of political economy, and basically said everyone in every classroom gets a copy of this. And that was sort of his model for unifying Germany. And, you know, so there is a weird way in which you have, we're bringing it in, but we're also exporting it. Let's talk, you know, last 20 years here in American history Sort of growing up, when I when I thought of American exceptionalism, you know, my my experience of that was sort of post nine eleven and and George W. Bush and and I, I remember being even this was even in the early maybe 2013, 2014, hearing Ted Cruz in a speech at a, at the Value Voters Summit, you know, and, and basically every presidential candidate had the Bible. Trump actually was there and he was waving the Bible around in his talk. I remember Ted Cruz, you know, his speech, lots of scripture. It also included at the time a line about bombing, bombing Muslims in the Middle East until the sand turned blue, you know, and that was sort of an applause line, you know, and it was, that was very cringy to me at the time, you know, it felt very much kind of like a, a bastardization of not only the Christian faith, but also you know, a, a healthy sense of American exceptionalism. Fast forwarding today, there is the the national conservative movement. And full disclosure, I'm on the planning committee for the upcoming conference. And, you know, th there is a sense in which th there's an attempt to recover, I think, you know, sort of a healthy sense of an American 
you know, American nationalism or American exceptionalism. And I think it is notably less adventurous when it comes to sort of military projects overseas. At the same time, you know, I wouldn't be so naive as to think there wasn't some perhaps connecting thread between the American exceptionalism of of the early aughts under Bush and perhaps national conservatism. And I know that there have been many, you know, serious critiques of national conservatism as an ideology. So I'm curious, you know, what your view is on national conservatism and do you just see it as a new manifestation of the old American exceptionalism or is this really a turn towards particulars in a healthy way? Wow. Yeah. And I feel like I'm not as well read as I should be on the whole phenomenon, but I've I've done a good bit of reading and I find myself really torn on this question. And I have friends on all sides of this debate and I learn from everybody. Um, I'm always concerned. And this is more of my convictions as a Christian rather than scholar, conservative American. I'm perhaps hypersensitive to any instrumentalizing of the Christian faith. If these reaffirmations are really generic, I they just don't have any purchase purchase on. So that's one thought I have. But as far as exceptionalism, and even when we say old exceptionalism, I'm a fan of the really old exceptionalism. <laughs> the the of what's how we answer the question, what makes America different? What makes America America? I like the really old, the Walter McDougall Old Testament of American foreign policy and domestic. It is more historical, grounded. It is more experiential. It is more institutional, as I keep saying, that American exceptionalism means we have this system of government and constitutionalism and checks and balances. That 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 may not inspire people very much. It's it's more mundane, but it's a it's an amazing achievement and it's really fragile and really hard to put back together again, as we are finding out. So if somebody says, I believe in American exceptionalism, it's because our institutions or our character is so different. But the ex- exceptionalism that uh, the newer exceptionalism that undermines that, that is crusading, that is, that is messianic, that is a redeemer nation ideology, then to me, that's not American exceptionalism. In fact, those are probably the, way, probably the ways you guarantee that you're actually going to sound like all the other empires in world history. Uh, you probably lose your exceptionalism the more you talk about the some divine mandate you have to bring emancipation to the rest of the world that's not really very exceptional well we have time for one more question and i want to shift back to our original topic of protestantism in america and focus on a book of yours the great tradition which is something you edited for isi it's a, a anthology of some of the great texts throughout western civilization it's a very popular Uh, with our students. And at the beginning, you write, there are tensions and inconsistencies in the great tradition. 
This is especially true for the Protestant reformers and their Catholic adversaries, such as John Calvin and the Jesuits, respectively. But this anthology attempts to recover an educational legacy. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that continuous notion of educating as a liberating endeavor throughout the West and how Protestantism fits into that. And then maybe briefly, you know, what ways has has the Protestant faith shaped education in the United States? All right. Part of my concern there and in the great tradition to be sure to include a variety of Protestant reformers and Catholic thinkers in the 1500s, 1600s, was to show that despite all the differences, when it came to questions of the formation of human beings, the formation of character and judgment, they speak from a common tradition. And think about, I mean, the reformers are educated in the in the Catholic universities of Europe. They're reading the same text. And some recent work I've been doing, I've gone back to John Winthrop, some recent work I've been doing, if you go back and look at exegetical commentaries on the Ten Commandments from both Catholic and Protestant sources, it, you know, stealing is stealing. Honoring your mother and your father looks the same to Protestant and Catholic. So I think when we think of education in that broad sense of the formation of the human being, there, there is a common tradition there that they all draw from, speak to, and help help continue. I, I think edu- the history of education of, and of classical education has been marred by the same bad versions of history that assume that Protestantism means the beginnings of the crazy modernity and the wrecking of everything and you know that, that it's the taking apart of western civilization when when in fact there's such strong continuity in there, there in in those centuries and i think the crazy really crazy stuff doesn't come until much much later i think when protestantism itself is radically reinvented in the early 19th century under Protestant liberalism and then on to the social gospel, I think that's more of a seismic shift in Protestantism and and Christianity than even the 1500s. Uh, So that's one thought. You had another question. The role of Protestantism shaping American educational institutions. Sure, sure. America, colonial America, overwhelmingly Protestant. Colonial America, overwhelmingly some version of Calvinism. And Americans built colleges wherever they went. Think of Harvard. Within six years, the founding of the Puritan colony, they've got Harvard, founded Harvard. We've got William and Mary. We've got uh, what will become Princeton. We've got Yale. And then as Americans move west, my own college, Hillsdale College, 1844, Free Will Baptists from New England. Uh, Americans build these institutions wherever they go, and Catholics begin to do the same thing. And, and even and sometimes as part of a culture war, building churches, building missionary organizations, and building colleges for the education of the young and the training of an educated ministry. So 
it, it is hard to imagine American higher education without the Protestant churches in America. They, they funded it. They sustained it. They sent their people to these schools. And the crazy, crazy liberal arts colleges now, the most left-wing liberal arts colleges, were all founded originally by Congregationalists, Episcopalians, Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans. That's the origin of all of these colleges. Well, we can we can only hope they get back to their roots, but I'm not right. I'm not holding my breath, but ISI will will do our part with the small uh, groups of students and, and professors there. Uh, we'll, we'll end on that note, Richard. If people want to see more of their work or purchase your books, where can they find you? Sure. Well, Amazon.com, where we all seem to go these days. And I have a recent book out that Julia Ward Howe project I was working on became my book on the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And that came out from Cornell University Press in 2019. They're all available on Amazon. You can always talk to the good folks at ISI about how to get the two books I've published with, with ISI. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. And thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review. We will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. ISI.